right, good morning, everybody. Once again, thank you for being with me on this beautiful Sunday morning here at the Digital Cathedral, the digital gathering of hungry believers from around the world, of which you're a part of. And it's always a privilege and an honor, really, to come into your home to spend some time with you. I feel like the way that we have this kind of set up on Sunday morning, that it's very personal. It's you and me having a conversation together. And of course, we're letting hundreds of other people from around the world in on our, our private time together. So I'd like for you to look at it that way. I'm doing some private discipling of you and you're feeding back to me. And uh, never doubt that I learn a lot from your comments and your feedback and your messages. I see your posts on Don Keithley Ministries and I can tell that you've been paying attention to what we're doing on Sunday morning at the Digital Cathedral. All right, we're actually winding down our, our study that has taken us all year from January. We're now into September, and we're just about ready to conclude our study on some of the writings of Paul. We've come through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and we're down to Colossians chapter 3. And in this chapter, this is a great chapter. I'm going to finish up chapter 3 today. I'll do the whole chapter, and next week, chapter 4 which will be what, the 13th of September. So we will begin to do something else on the 20th of September and get involved in some, some other activity. But I wanna finish strong on Colossians chapter three and Colossians chapter four because there's some, there's some wonderful things in here. In his third chapter of Colossians, Paul takes on an issue that, uh, again, all of us have probably encountered. I feel like I say that every week because the Paul, writings of Paul are so personal. They're so um, transgenerational. We can pull the truth that Paul was explaining to the Galatians or the Philippians or who, whichever uh, church he was writing to, whatever believers he was addressing, we can pull some of that truth right into the world in which we live today. The thing that Paul really jumps into in this chapter is an issue that I wanna talk about uh, because it has to do with the life that he's given us that we know, we've heard taught about, um, but I'm not sure that we're actually believing it. It's kind of like a guy that wrote me this week, an Assembly of God pastor sent me a message. He was reading my book, Hell's Illusion, and he, he messaged me this, and it, what it, it struck a chord in me because I thought, you know what, this is how we are sometimes when revelation comes. He, he said this, he said, I know what you're saying in the book is true. He said, I have no doubt that it's true, but he said, I'm having a hard time believing it. And, and so I think one of the biggest hurdles that we have to jump in living the Christ is us life is being able to actually feel and function with the reality that his life is our life and that you know, the life that we're living by grace is a life that fully mirrors and fully reflects the life that Jesus gave as our life, that, that, there's, this, that there's this co-life that we have together with him, that our life is in, you know, the word is union, that we're actually in full union with him. We know it's true. We've heard enough teaching on it to see it, but I'm wondering sometimes if we really believe it. Do we really function that way? Is it, has it become part of of who we really are. Because the Father had this full union with Christ, with us fully in mind, um, and he's revealing it to Paul, and 
Paul is trying to get across to us that we are fully unique creations that had our point of origination as being created in Christ. I mean, you were never not in Christ. And maybe that helps us to understand the life that we live. We live as Christ and that we can actually believe it, not just know it, but actually believe it. There was never a time that you were not in Christ. In fact, Ephesians 2.10, I wish somebody had taught me this verse. Remember when we were back in Ephesians, we spent a little bit of time on this verse because it says that we are God's workmanship. I like to let that settle down into my thinking. I, I am God's workmanship. That means he took some personal time in creating me. You, you, you don't have a workmanship. You don't create something, but what you take time with it. You know, if you, if you like to work with wood, if you're building cabinets, that workmanship takes, you know, you, it takes time. It takes part of who you are poured into that piece of work. So when he says in Ephesians 2.10 that I am his workmanship or we are his workmanship, it tells me that he thought enough of us, he loved enough of us, even when he was creating us, to spend special time with us, that we're special in his eyes. Then he goes on to say that we are his workmanship, and this is the part that I think Paul's driving home, and this is the part I, I not only want to know, I want to really believe it. Believing is a uh, effortless response to revelation. So I want this to become revelation to where I can just naturally, effortlessly respond to what he says here. So he says, I am his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. I was created in Christ Jesus. I wanna say that again. You were created in Christ Jesus. So all of the years that you thought that you had been separated from Christ Jesus or you had jump through a lot of hoops to try to become joined to Christ Jesus, you were really wasting your effort. I was wasting my effort. Because the abs absolute truth is we were created in him. Then he goes on to say we were created for good works, which God before ordained that we should walk in them. So I don't know how long it's going to take for us to walk in all the good works that the Father has for us. It might take a couple eons of time, but I will assure you that we will walk in all the good works that he has created us through his his individual workmanship. I mean, this is a, a tremendous work of a, of a sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent father to put special handiwork into all of us and then design us to live a certain way. And I think I'm really driving this home because when I became confident of my origination, then it also became clear to me that a loving, omnipotent father also had my destination fully planned out. He's not going to create something, but what he knows the destination is fully set. And again, Paul said, when we studied in Philippians, in that sixth verse of the first chapter, Paul said, being confident of this very thing. I'm confident of this. And he's confident of it because he knows his point of origination and he knows his destination. He says, being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in me will also bring it to completion. The one that started the good work in me has the ability and the wherewithal to bring it to absolute completion. So here's the point I'm making right now. He set us in the beginning to be in Christ. He made us to live in Christ. He made us to end in Christ. And he made us to perpetually for eternity through the eons of time to, to share the very life of Christ forever. So he began the good work. 
And I want to assure you that he began the good work in you before the foundation of the world. He began the good work in you before you were ever even in your mother's womb. Now, when we're coming through these books, and we're going to hit the third chapter of Colossians today, but I just was reminded this week of something, that we need to remember something as we come through the churches that Paul was writing to, whether it was Galatia, uh, Ephesus, Philippi, or Colossae, we need to re remind ourselves that he's writing to people that are brand, brand new believers. He's writing to people that are just coming into this revelation. This was all new to them. They did not have a, a, a Christian. They did not have a spiritual background. They didn't go to an evangelical church. Then all of a sudden, Paul show up and begin to explain to them what they now possessed in Christ. And I'm saying that because it, it, it just appears to me that we should be way down the road spiritually from these early followers of Christ that, have, that do not have the background that we have. They don't have 20, 30, 40 years of spiritual tracking like you and I have, and we should be way down the road from them except for this one thing. We're coming out of generations of divisions that they didn't. We're coming out of strife and denominationalism and uh, various church splits. Maybe you've come through a church split. If you've been in church most of your life, you've probably gone through more than one church split. We've come through uh, conflicting doctrines. We've come through people that are arguing about doctrine all the time. We've come through rapture theories, end time conspiracies. We've learned to exalt the Bible over the spirit of truth that resides within us that Jesus never told us to do. So we're just now coming out of all this fog. All, all, this, all this built up cloudiness that has been handed down to us for generations that has really choked the very life of God out of us, I think, at times. We're, we're starting to come out of that. So the track that Paul puts them on in chapter 3 is brand new to them. Right? It's, it's, he's breaking new ground with them. But for us, the things that he lays out are those things that we need to renew our mind to. And as we renew our mind to it, we start to cut baggage off. We start to cut some of that, that we start to work our way through some of the fog. We start to come through some of the conflicting doctrine and the, the conspiracy end time theories and all the trash that has been handed to us. Uh, you know, probably a lot of us started, uh, I'm just using this for an example, started as a Baptist and you became a charismatic and then you became word of faith. So you picked up all kinds of stuff through all of those different moves that you came through and now he's dismantling all of that. There's a, there's a, um, a, a familiar word today, it's called deconstruction. I'm not real big on deconstruction, I'll tell you why. I have a lot of, a lot of friends, I, I have pastor friends that have deconstructed, deconstructed so much that they don't believe anything anymore. Here's the healthy way to do it. Learn the truth. Learn truth. And when truth begins to invade your life, when the light comes on, the darkness will go. I, I, I've never deconstructed anything. What I have done is I have adapted to a brand new system of beliefs, and it's changing all the time. So if I'm going to spend my life deconstructing, every time I learn something new, I'm going to have to deconstruct what I already knew. I found it more valuable. This will be very helpful to some of you that have hooked onto this deconstruction thing. I would set the deconstruction aside and just let light flood your life. You understand what I'm saying to you? Let light flood your life and darkness will automatically go. Let truth come in and lies will leave. So Paul, very sim in very simplistically worded verses, 
I think makes it so clear <laughs> that you have to use some of your old religious lens to misunderstand what Paul is actually saying. What I want to do this morning in the time that I have is I want to concentrate on the first 17 verses of chapter 3 because I think that's the heart and soul of chapter 3. He really breaks these 17 verses down into three divisions that I want to look at this morning. So let me just start with division one. The first four verses make up division one, which talks about the union that we have with Christ in glory. And I want to talk about glory, but let, let's, let me read the first uh, four verses of chapter three of the book of Colossians. Are you ready? Here we go. He says, if then you were raised with Christ, he said, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Verse two, set your mind on things above. Don't set your mind on things on the earth. Verse three, for you died. That, that, that brings great pictures to me. I, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. Well, honestly, I've died my death. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If anything is ever going to get to your life, it has got to go through the Father and the Son to get to you because your life is hidden with Christ in God. So whatever you're encountering, there's at least two others that are going through it with you. And I'll tell you what, they're pretty good traveling buddies. Christ and the Father are going through it with you. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And I don't want to take time with it, but it didn't say in Jesus. It said in Christ, the eternal spirit, the creative force of the Father. Your life is hidden within them. Then it says in verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, see, you don't have a life of your own anymore. You have the life of Christ. So let me come back to what I was saying in the introduction, that some of us find it hard to believe that we are in this union, this oneness with the Christ. We, we know it's true. We've read it. We've heard enough teaching on it. But to actually grab it, to actually believe it, is sometimes a little more difficult. So he's emphasizing that when Christ, who is our life, appears, when he's revealed to us, when we see him, when it dawns on us, when the light comes on, <clears throat> he says in verse 4, then you also will appear with him in glory. And I've got some things I want to say about that. <clears throat> the key word in that fourth verse, in verses 1 to 4 to me, is the word glory, because we will appear with him in glory. The, 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 you hear a lot about the word glory. Glory is kind of a Christianese term. It's a Bible term. We toss it around. Uh, there's a lot of glory on that. The glory of God fell. But we really don't know what the word is about. So let me, let me explain a little bit to you about glory. Glory is the Greek word doxa, D-O-X-A. And it means honor. It means manifestation of God. But it can also mean the good opinion which determines value. Now, let me say that again, because you, you probably uh, have heard that glory means the manifestation of God, and it really does. But it, also mean, it can also mean a good opinion, which determines value. So in that fourth verse, when he says, when he says um, the end of it, that we shall also appear with him in glory, I think what he's getting across here is not only will we appear with him in a full manifestation of the Father, but we will also begin to understand the good opinion that he has of us, which sets our value. Your value is not based on what other people have said on you or even you have said on you, right? Bible says don't think more highly of yourself than you should, but it never tells us to think less of ourselves than we should. 
And that's where most people get stuck. I'm not worried about people thinking more highly, generally. I see more people that think a lot less of themselves. So he writes this fourth verse to help us to get some understanding that when he appears, when he's revealed, we get a revelation that really settles into us who he is, then all of a sudden you're going to understand who you are and the value that you have in the Father's eyes. So, so union with Christ, manifesting the Father, sharing the Father's good opinion of beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased, will begin to show us then the union that we have with Christ, and he had always fixed it on us. It, he didn't come up with that good opinion of us when you prayed the magic prayer or when you were water baptized or even when you were born into the earth. He came up with that high value. He placed high value on you, and I cannot emphasize that too much to my, my, my church, my digital cathedral. I can't emphasize too much that he placed tremendous value on you before you were ever born. Let, let me read a couple of verses that, that Paul told Timothy. We're not going to study those verses in our study of the four books, so let, let's just look at this for a minute. Here's some value he said on you. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Let me read verse 8 with it. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God, verse 9, who saved us. The power of God saved us. The power of God saved us. End of verse 8 to the start of verse 9. According to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Right, now he's going to be set, start to set the value. See, if it was according to your works, then you could set the value on what you did. But you didn't do it according to your works. So now he gets to set the value not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. I bet your pastor never taught that verse, did he? He never told you about the grace and the purpose that was given to you in Christ before time began. Never told you about that. So he's setting, he's setting a, a pretty strong value on us right there. And then he goes on in, in verse 10 and says this. But that value, that, that grace, that purpose is now being revealed by the appearing of the Savior, Jesus Christ. All right? So remember we just read that when he is revealed that we will share in the glory, in the manifestation, full manifestation of the Father. We'll share in the value that the Father places on us. So he says in verse 10 that it's now, it's now dawning on us. We're now getting the revelation of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death. Man, we're some, some, one of these uh, short series, I'm going to get into this last part. Who has abolished death. Who has abolished death. So we died our death who has abolished death. This, this boy ain't going to die and has brought immortality to light through the gospel. This boy ain't going to die. I've died my death. Now, there may be a time that this flesh suit doesn't show up Sunday morning at the digital cathedral, but I'm going to tell you something. If you're, if you're still in your earth suit and I'm not in mine, look me in the eye. I'm going to be cheering you on from the cloud of witnesses. You and I are friends for eternity. Right? So he has abolished death, and we're, be, we're seeing that. We're, we're getting a glimpse of it. And he has brought life 
and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, when you talk about those kind of things today, people think you're, you're way off, you're a heretic. So uh, it's being revealed to us by the Holy Spirit as we see this eternal mystery unfolding, right? In, in fact, uh, he says in, we read it in the first verse of the third chapter, that if you were raised with Christ, see, you've, you've already been brought back to life. If you were raised with Christ, then seek the things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. So if you were raised with Christ, we died our death. We died our death with him. And now we have been resurrected. Christ's resurrection, Jesus was born from death to life. He was born again from death to life. Isn't that right? So if, if we've been raised with him, this is breaking some ground with some of you, and this is going to shake you. This is going to rock your world. So if Jesus was born again from death to life, and we were resurrected with him, then we have been born from above. We have been born again, what Jesus told Nicodemus, from death to life. It's a work of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, raised us from the dead. We've already come through the process of being born again. 1 Peter 1.3 affirms that. I probably should read that verse to you. 1 Peter 1.3. Peter, Pete finally got it. He finally got it over here. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. That word begotten, if you haven't heard me teach on it before, is the Greek word ananageo. And it means simply uh, to be produced again or to be born again or to be born anew. Ananageo, the word begotten that he uses right there. Notice his abundant mercy has birthed us again, has begotten us again, has produced us again. How? To a living hope through the resurrection. I mean, there's just so many... There's just so many witnesses to this thing that you don't get born again when you pray a prayer. You don't get born again when your belief is strong enough or your faith is high enough. You get born again from death to life when you co-resurrected with Jesus. So that's, that's the birth of the new covenant right there. That's the birth of the new covenant right there. Old things passed away. All things became new. Now, let me hasten to say this objectively, the new covenant began at the resurrection. Subjectively, it really was not put into practice until 70 AD when the Romans overran Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And at that point, animal sacrifice stopped. The old religious system came to a death. It's, it, there, it was no more. So subjectively, the new covenant began in 70 AD. Objectively, it was instituted at the resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's what's, I'm going to teach on this sometime too. That between 33, approximately 33 AD when Jesus died, or 30 AD, however technically you want to be, and 70 AD, that's, that's like 41, 42 years, that's a generation. There was an entire generation that was what I would call a transitional generation that lived between the objective setting in of the new covenant and the subjective practice of what it was all about. 
All right. So, but don't, that, that's just a quick overview of the new covenant. So now, right now, you're in the middle of it all by the eternal design of the Father. That's what we're talking about here in these first four verses. So if you, if you embrace this, then you know what? Your perspective is going to change. Your desires are going to change. Your interests are going to, are going to switch. When you, when you grab on to those first four verses about uh, the glory and the union and everything he's expressing in those, those first four verses, you start to recognize, listen to me, you start to recognize that the change in your life comes from the inside to the outside because that's where the work is done. That's, that's a totally new experience than, than most of you walked through for most of your life. When you tried religiously to change the inside by what you did outside. That's what religion taught us to do. Religion was all about modifying your behavior, changing your outward actions, getting you to perform a certain way, thinking that that would change you on the inside. Problem is it never did. It never did. We tried hard. This is, this is one of those tough changes, knowing that the change is beginning from the inside to the outside because of the way religion has groomed us. Previously, we would see a truth. Here's what I did for years. See if you can relate to this. Wherever you've been, man, I've been there religiously, spiritually. I've been there. I've, I've tracked through it all. Previously, we would see a truth. We'd go to church, the pastor would present something, I would present something, I would, I would think about it, pray about it during work, I would see it. I would come to the church, I'd present it, and then I would present it in a way that we could have it by discipline and dedication. And we would try to conform ourselves by discipline and dedication to the new truth. We would try by outward dedication uh, discipline, trying harder, uh, cutting our, you know, trying to live a, a more righteous life. We would try to change our heart. But the problem is our heart never changed. What Paul brings to the table is he says when there's an inward change, when there's a, when there's a, when there's a heart change, then there automatically is the fruit of an outward change. So we, the, the whole emphasis is just switched. We've just flipped the script. So our crucifixion with Christ has severed our, our, our connection to this life and the change is, is progressively getting stronger inwardly and we see that now he has raised us up at least inwardly to a brand new awareness. And as that new awareness is lifted inwardly, all of a sudden then our mind is also renewed and then begins to change our outside also. So verse two, back in Colossians chapter three, verse two, uh, this is now just a natural supernatural event where it says, uh, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So now we've, we've, we've caught the idea that the awareness is elevating. So now my interests, my desires are no longer to try to figure it out in an earthly way. I'm willing to let my spirit uh, begin to open doors uh, inwardly, to bring revelation inwardly. See, you, you get revelation in here. You don't get a revelation up here. You get revelation down here. So now I'm seeking the things that are above. I'm, I'm seeking things of the spirit. I'm, I'm, I'm seeking things on a higher dimension. Uh, uh, if you want to be more modern, I'm, I'm raising my vibration, right? Uh, my frequency is elevating. When I, you know, I, and I can see that when I get revelation, it really, it really changes my, my perspective. I get excited about it. That's elevating your frequency, your vibration. 
So then three and four becomes, verse three and four becomes your happy dance because when you seek things that are above, you understand that you died with him and my life is not my own. I'm hidden with Christ in God. And verse four says that when he appears, when Christ who is our life appears, then we also appear in glory with him. That's my happy dance, brother. That's, that's, my, that's my sweet spot. Verse four is telling us that as Christ is seen for who he is, then we begin to see us as we are. That's, that's probably the most amazing revelation that, that comes to you is now you begin to see you for who you really are. You begin to see, and who you really are is how the Father sees you, the eyes that he sees you through. Because you're one with him in glory, full manifestation, then these things just begin to unfold, all right? So that's, that's section one. Let's get on to verses five through 11 which describes that this new creation life that we're now into and how it contrasts with the life that we did live, the life that we've left. Now, verse 5 says this. So we've just come through some strong stuff, got us in the glory, got us out of our own life. So though, then he says in verse 5, therefore, or because of that, the conclusion, he said, because this is where you're now living, then verse, verse 5, put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. It means we, we worship those things. Those were held in high esteem, brother. We, we pursued those things. We chased those things. Those were, were part of our inner being. But now, because of the first four verses, then he puts the therefore in verse five, which means the conclusion of the first four verses is, verse five is you put that in your rear view mirror because that's not you. It's not you. If you're practicing verse five, any of those things in verse five, the, the uh, covetousness, um, um, all that junk that he mentions, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, he said, if, if you're practicing those things, it's because you, you, you've heard it, you know it, but you don't believe it yet. Because if you believed it, that verse 5 is behind you. It no longer is, is part of you. Now, he goes on to verse 6 and says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the children of disobedience. My, oh, my. Now, my evangelical friends would say, see right there it is. You're involved in that stuff, then the wrath of God is coming on you. I like the way the, the, the mirror Bible puts verse six. It says this, these distorted expressions are in total contradiction to God's desire and design for your life. So when you practice verse five, verse six is saying, God's going to show you that these things are in total contradiction to his desire and design for your life. Now, the word that jumps out because of your grooming in religion is the word wrath. The wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. Now, you can do your own research, but the word wrath is probably one of the most misused words in the Bible. We think of wrath from a human standpoint, that when someone would do verse 5, fornication, uncleanness, all that stuff he mentions in verse 5, then 
people are going to be angry. People, somebody's going to be mad at you, angry with you. The word wrath in the Greek is the word orge. Oh, I think it's spelled O-R-G-E. And what it means is intense passion. Intense passion. Now, again, when you look at verse 5, the natural reaction, the most intense passion you could have toward, uh, uh, toward verse 5 of chapter 3, the practice of fornication, uncleanness, evil desires, covetousness, the most intense passion you could have toward that would be anger, wrath, madness, hostility. But the problem is, that's not God's intense passion. The most intense passion the Father has is love. So, that word has, in Strong's Concordance, you know, God bless Strong's Concordance. Strong's Concordance is highly tied to the King James Version of the Bible. I'm sorry, it's very slanted. And sometimes it defines the words according to how the King James has translated them. They're like in cahoots. <laughs> you buy a King James Bible, you need to get a Strong's Concordance. There's other resources. There's other resources. Someday I'm gonna, I'll do a teaching on the resources I use. So don't, don't message me. I'm not going to get into all that. The most intense desire that the Father has is love. So here's, here's what I think verse 6 is really saying. When you know verses 1 to 4, uh, that your union is in Christ, that as uh, he manifests, appears, that you're going to understand who you are, see yourself through the Father's eyes, you, you, you know that, you understand it, but you're not practicing, you're not believing it, but you're falling back into verse 5. All that mess, the uncleanness, the fornication, the, you know, the, all the stuff he mentions in verse 5. The Father comes with the most intense passion he has, which is love. He comes in love. And his love is a consuming fire. And the consuming fire, the passion of God, begins to burn those things out of our life. So when he turns the love dial up, you know what happens? When he turns the love dial up, there comes a revelation of how good he really is. A goodness revelation. There's nothing that will change your life faster than understanding the goodness of God. So much so that Paul's Paul said, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he said that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Now, what religion would have had us believe is that when the wrath of God, the anger, the hostility of God is poured out on us because we're practicing those things in verse 5, that we will fall on our face and we will repent. Mm, that's furthest from the truth. I've seen people that have fallen into verse 5 that know better, and when they think God is angry with them, mad, hostile toward them, you know what? They throw up their hands and they say, to hell with the whole deal. I don't want anything to do with it. I can't do it. I can't match up to it. If he's mad, he's mad. I can't help it. If somebody could have come along and ministered to them the love of God, that he's with you in that mess. He hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't separated himself from you. He hasn't, he hasn't been mad. In fact, he loves you. He's turning, he's turning your consciousness of his love up so that when you lay in bed at night, you're going to become more aware of his goodness than you've ever become before. You know what that will do? When that dial is turned high enough, it will change that person's mind. 
Now, you may act like verse 8 and 9 of, of chapter 3. But he says, now you yourselves are to put off all these. Put these off yourself. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. The old man is, is your old identity. The old identity is what you thought of yourself, what people thought of you, what religion taught about you. You've put that off. You've put, on, you've put that old identity off. You don't see yourself in that light anymore. And then he says in verse 10, and put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge. He gets better all the time. He, he, he becomes more distinctive. He becomes more uh, crystal clear. It becomes more obvious. Put on that new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So the more that you crystallize your view on the goodness of God, the love of God, the faithfulness of God, the mercy of God, you know what? The, more, the, the, the sharper your vision gets. You're not seeing through a glass as darkly as you used to see. And so now, now you've got this new identity, this new man, and that's what you begin to live out of. You put on, this is what I'm saying, you put on the new self, the recognition of the new self. It's always been you, but it's been buried under rubble. It's been buried under confusion. It's been buried under false ideas. And as all that is scraped off, the new identity, the, the, who you've been, but it appears new to you, all of a sudden begins to emerge. Now, Paul wants to make sure that everybody knows that they're included in this. So he says in verse, in verse 11, he says in verse 11, he said, this new man, which is renewed according to the knowledge of him who created him. He said, this is for everybody. He said, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So he runs through the scenario of different, of different people groups. He talks about the Greeks, the Jews, the circumcised, the uncircumcised, the barbarian, the Scythians, the slave, the free. And he says, you can run through all those people groups. And he says that the fact is that Christ is all and he's in all. And I always point out, I can't help but point out that he puts the Scythians in there. The Scythi Nobody knows who the Scythians are. So I did, a, I did a research on the Scythians. Scythians are the most barbaric unevangelized people of Paul's time, lived in southern Russia, out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody went to the Scythians. They had no clue who Christ was, never heard the gospel, never heard anything. And you know what Paul says about the Scythians? Christ is in them. Christ is all and in all. Paul was an inclusionist. You understand that? He was an inclusionist. That means nobody was excluded. Nobody was outside what Christ has done. In, in, in Paul's teaching, all is the operative word. All is the operative word in Paul's message. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, just as all died in Adam, even so all shall be made alive in Christ. So Paul, there's no Calvinism in Paul. You know, Calvinism selects a few, predestines a few to be saved, and everybody else goes to hell. Arminianism is for everybody, but you have to have the faith, you have to believe, you have to accept it, you have to live it, you have to pray it, and then maybe you're, you made it. Or universalism. Universalism says everybody's saved no matter what you do or what you believe or what God you serve. 
inclusionism, which I, I, I'm an inclusionist. I'm not a universalist. I get accused, accused of being a universalist all the time. I'm not a universalist. I believe there's only one way, and that's Jesus. I don't believe every road leads to God, but I believe God will come down every road to get to you. That's inclusionism. Inclusionism says that everybody's included in what Jesus did. Some of us know it. The vast majority of people don't know it. That's what evangelism is about. Evangelism is not getting somebody to pray the magic prayer. Evangelism is about opening the eyes of people, opening the eyes of their understanding so that they can see that they were included, that they've been reconciled. Inclusion is hold to the idea that, that hopefully at some point in time, the spirit of truth will awaken everybody so that they can see and respond without effort by grace. Inclusionists would say death is not the end of the story. Your spirit does not die. When, you, when, when your body, leave, when, you, when your tent drops, your spirit continues to live. Same level of consciousness you're living in now. And through the efforts of the drawing of, of Jesus, no matter how long it takes, that love will always be there. The door will always be open. But I, an inclusionist would say Jesus is the way to the heart of the Father, to the realization, to the abundant life, to everything that God has laid up for us. Now, some may resist for, for millions of years. I don't know. But it's your choice. I believe in choice. But I don't believe that death is the end of the story. And I think when you die, I think scripture would prove out that God just wraps his arms around and loves you even that much more. You're more conscious of it all of the time. So Paul's making sure in verse 11. So there's a difference between Calvinism, Arminianism, Universalism, and Inclusionism. And I, I think you need to know the difference. I'm not a Universalist. I think Jesus is the way. I don't think Buddha's the way. Uh, you know, I think everybody's going to come to understanding about who Jesus is, and everybody's going to embrace Jesus. Every, every day, someday, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, all right? There will be a recognition of that. It might take, might take a couple million years, but it will happen. It will happen, all right? So Paul's writing verse 11 that Christ is in all, and the new creation life is to be lived. It doesn't have to be built by faith. It doesn't have to be built by confession or good works but it's acknowledged. This, this whole thing that he's talking about here is an acknowledgement. It's a, it's a bringing into your lifestyle, uh, into your consciousness. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a greater understanding. And so we often see it from within before we understand it in our minds, and that's okay. I, I've understood a lot of things inside before, I, before my mind really grasped it. Uh, you can tell sometimes when that's happening because you'll know it, but you won't be able to articulate it to anybody. That happened to me with grace for a long time. And I, I was so full of the grace of God. Uh, I, my life, I was born again, again, again. I couldn't tell it. I couldn't articulate it. I'd go to church and try to teach a message on grace. It, I, it was pitiful. <laughs> it was pitiful. And I created some problems because I confused people because I wasn't clear, see, Sometimes you got to let it crock pot until you can really talk about it and articulate it. You're included whether you know it, whether you know it or not. So we share in the glory, the favor of the manifested life with Christ through co-crucifixion, verses 1 to 4. And then there's a new life that emerges, old things pass away, hang-ups, the flesh, the junk passes away, and our desire becomes on things that are above. I think those of us here at the Digital Cathedral, we have an interest, an intense interest in spiritual things. We, we, want the, we want to see the mysteries uncovered. Our heart is toward the mysteries. 
We're seeing more today than we've ever seen any time in our life. Now he's walked us through this so that in verses 12 to 17, he says this. Now that you understand you're included, the glory of God settles on you, old things have passed away, you now have a love that has come to you through the Father, come from the Father, through the Son and the Spirit, that now you can begin to love as he loves. You can now become that reflection of love in the world as Jesus was. And so in, in, in verse 12, he calls us the beloved. Look what he says in verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, that's you, you're the elect of God. Everybody's elected by God. Holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So he's saying, now that you got the goods, now that, now that you, you have uh, embraced it, right? and I hope by this point you're believing it, right? You not only just know it, you're starting to believe it. He says that you're the beloved, and so now you have this, this uh, river of life that's flowing up out of you, out of your belly is flowing rivers of living water that manifest his love, and his love becomes now your love that you can pass and you know that you're connected to this endless supply of love. So you can forgive freely. Forgive freely because love has given you access to all things. No, You don't have to get anything from anybody, right? The only thing that puts a kink in that hose, the only thing that puts a kink in that hose of love to other people is to forget who you are by falling back under law. It, you know, as far as I've come, and I, man, I look at my life over the last 15, 18 years, I, have, I, I am so different. <laughs> I'm a different guy. But you know, every once in a while, there's this tendency to begin to gauge myself by what I do. How much time I'm studying, how, how much revelation I'm, I'm bringing to the digital cathedral. And I, I, I evaluate myself. And when I put myself back under that, you know what? I think it puts a kink in the love that God has for us. So we, we need to decide, you know, at that point, when we fall under back under that, then all of a sudden we, we, we go back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's, that's not the tree you and I are to live under. We don't live under that tree anymore. So here's my message this morning. I brought you through this third chapter of Galatians. It's been a great chapter, powerful chapter, three great sections. Enjoying the glory of God, understanding the new life we have in Christ, uh, seeing that we have love now that flows from us that we can freely give to everybody else. You know what I want to say to you, and I'm starting to land the plane this morning. Let me just say this to you. You are something the planet has never seen before. I'm talking about, we are, we are a mass of people. There have been individuals, I think, that had a glimpse of what we're, we're, we're talking about, what we're teaching, what you and I are getting together. And I by no means am holding myself up as some, you know, revelatory genius that is dispelling to everybody else. We're getting this together. And that's one of the powers of the digital cathedral is that we're sharing ideas, and what I'm saying to you, you're saying, man, that's the same thing I'm saying. And you message me and you make comments. I love your comments. Make comments. At the end of the message, go down and make a comment. Come over on Facebook when I post it there or on the Don Keithley Minister page. Make a comment. Here's what strikes me. What he's saying to you is what he's saying to me. Sometimes I haven't expressed it yet, but you're expressing it. I go, that's it right there. I got it. You teach me. We're something that the planet has never seen before, and we're being wired. 
I'm trying to say we're, we're being wired to multitudes of other people. I mean, Tash, the lady that helped me with my first book, Hell's Illusion, which I never would have gotten done without her, connected me to somebody in Australia to get a book done. And now we're, 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 we're really hot and heavy into the second book, um, Religion Busters. It's going to be the book your evangelical pastor never wanted you to read. It's going to be about 300, it's going to be a powerful book. But she said, I was connected to people. I'm connected to people around the world that are, are helping. I'm connected to people in other countries that help support me, that do a, a, a little monthly something, you know, and it's important that, that you just do something that helps support and, and say, you know what, I'm with you, man. Keep it moving, keep it rolling. We're the first people who have died their death and understand now they have been co-resurrected and that death, death does not have dominion over them. I think we are the first generation of people that can now say, nobody takes my life from me, I lay it down. Remember what we read in Timothy about, about immortality? I think that's getting stronger and we're starting to see that we have control. We're the first people to acknowledge that we were born from death to life, not through our confession, not through our prayer. We were born from death to life. We were born again through the resurrection. And so now we're able to just be free and love like he loves. We, 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 we did know in part, but that part is becoming more whole. We've come to understand that we are part of the beloved family of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and now we've joined that circle, and there's now four of us in that circle. You're in that circle, right? You're included to live, to love, and to demonstrate as a full manifested son and daughter of God. My goodness, how good this has been. All right, next Sunday morning, we're going to wrap it up with uh, Colossians chapter 4. Make sure you're with me Wednesday night. We'll get into this a little bit farther and deeper, and I'll probably spend a little bit more time <clears throat> on verses 11 to 17, this, this new creation life that we experience. Hope you got something from this today. Share the vid, share the teaching with a friend. Invite somebody to the Digital Cathedral next week. Hey, why not start a coffee group at your house? Why not buy a dozen donuts and invite three friends over and say, hey, we don't go to church anymore. Let's watch what Keith Lee's got to say. The guy's kind of kind of far out there, but he might bring something that resonates and is good for us. See you next Sunday morning. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Have a Jesus-filled week. And just let your light shine. Be salt and light wherever you go. God bless. See you next time.